Okay, let's go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Doug Taylor. Welcome to uh, the Noahide Nation's Proverbs class. Uh, appreciate the fact that you're here. Just a, a little bit about logistics. Um, if you have a microphone that is hooked up to your computer and you would like to ask a question or make a comment, which I encourage you to do, there is a microphone icon down in the lower left corner of your screen. Uh, if you just click on that, then a little thought bubble will show up next to your name, just like the one that's sitting next to my name right now. It lets me know you would like to speak. I'll click my uh, mic icon, which releases the microphone, and then you'll be able to talk. Once you're done, if you would click the microphone icon again, that releases it so that I can talk. Only one person can talk at a time uh, in this process. And as you know, you can also type comments as we go, and this is a designed to be a very interactive class. Uh, one thing I just want to also note for logistics purposes, there will be no Proverbs class next Sunday, June 28th. Uh, I will be at a, a Noahide conference in New York, and so we won't have class next week, uh, but we will pick up again uh, the following week. Uh, we will also not have class at this point on July 12th or July 26th, so you might want to note those dates. So there's three of them. Next week, June 28th, July 12th, and July 26th, we will not have class. Um, just also to go over the process that we use, uh, the study of Proverbs is a very, uh, is best done in a very interactive manner. So rather than just try to cover ground real fast, we're trying to go into some depth uh, in each of these Proverbs and understand exactly what is it that King Solomon was trying to get across to us. And from that, uh, we're trying to abstract out, if you will, the, the concepts. He's giving us particular cases, verse by verse. Every verse pretty much is a different case. Uh, and usually a comparison between good and evil, uh, the righteous and the wicked, uh, the wise versus the fool, uh, and so forth. And our job is to, to look at that case and try to figure out, okay, what's, what's the general rule from that? And what can we learn that we can apply in our lives every day? Uh, Mishle is a very, very practical book. Um, it is designed to help us with practical everyday problems that we run into at work, at home, uh, dealing with other people in life. And so um, it's trying to help us through that. And importantly show us how uh, the life of wisdom is a superior life uh, to the life of foolishness and why uh, the life of the righteous is better than the life of the wicked not because of you know necessarily the world to come or anything in the next life but right here right now in in the world that we're in today so that's the process so i'm going to ask you questions uh, along the way, and I would ask that uh, you, you join me on this journey. So we're starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3. And the verse reads, God will not let the righteous go hungry, and the essence of the wicked will be rejected, or will destroy him, or will batter him. There's several different ways you can uh, understand the, the Hebrew words, but uh, the, essentially it's God will not let the righteous go hungry and the essence of the wicked uh, will be 
uh, rejected or will destroy him. Okay, so given that as introduction, um, what are the questions that we might ask about that verse? What doesn't make sense to us? What would we need to define in order to thoroughly understand what the verse is saying? Uh, is there anything that, that doesn't make sense at all? Uh, what kinds of questions can we ask around that verse? And Kathleen, you wrote, aren't we seeing that in Iran right now? I'm not sure how you're tying that into the verse, so if you can elaborate on, on that. I'm not sure if you're talking about the, the first half or the second half or, uh, or both. Um, and Rena, we're on uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3. Again, chapter 10, verse 3, which reads, God will not let the righteous go hungry, and the essence of the wicked will be rejected, or will destroy him, or will batter him. Okay. So some some questions that I would would raise for us to, to consider. First of all, what does it mean when the verse says God? I mean, God will not let the righteous go hungry. Mishle, again, or Proverbs, is a very practical book about life. So, in this case, when it says God, what is it, was it really referring to? Is it just, you know, God's going to magically make sure that a righteous person never goes hungry, and it's sort of an invisible force, or, or what's, what's going on? How does that actually work, that God will not let a righteous person uh, go hungry. What's what's the mechanism behind that, and and do we in fact see that operating? Um, one of the questions that that we ask in these verses when we read them is, can we see this in the real world? And if we can't see it in the real world, then we have to ask, okay, are we understanding the verse properly? Because King Solomon was writing to us a very practical book. So, and Rena, I see your comment. This is talking about spiritual hunger, about the righteous going hungry, um, well, we have to establish that because we don't know yet exactly uh, what what uh, God's referring to. Is this like a literal physical hunger, like he's going to, um, uh, you know, make sure that they have appropriate food? Um, and, and I have to tell you as an aside that even as I speak this, my son just walked in the room and, and laid five uh, fresh strawberries on my desk. So, um, don't know if there's any connection, but I, but I like it. Uh, is it referring to that? Is it referring to spiritual hunger about the soul? Uh, so we would. That's a question we need to we need to try to understand and explore a little bit. Um, and Sue, you're saying that Tanakh that you're reading says Hashem will not bring hunger upon the souls of the righteous. Okay, and I'm not again not sure what it means about hunger and the soul. So we'd have to ask, what, what does that mean? Uh, when, when we talk about, well, a soul being hungry versus a soul not being hungry. Um, so there's, there's another question that we can put on our list. Um, we can ask, what does it mean that the existence of the wicked will be rejected? I mean, what does that mean? 
that the uh, sorry the the essence uh, of the wicked will will be rejected or will destroy him or will batter him. So what does that mean and how does that work uh, in uh, in real life? Uh, we could also ask what's the first half of the verse have to do with the second half? Because usually in these verses there's a contrast between uh, one thing and another. Uh, and so if on the one hand it says in the first part that God is going to not let something happen to the righteous, but in the second half it's saying the essence of a wicked person will batter him or destroy him. Those don't seem like they match very well in terms of, uh, of a contrast. And uh, Rena, you have uh, rejected in Hebrew says, right, pushed back. So, yeah, in uh, listening to one of my mentors talk about this verse, he uh, used three different possibilities. Uh, he said rejected or destroyed or battered. Uh, I think pushed back it, it would also uh, fit in that category. And another interesting question we could ask ourselves is, statistically, if you, we look around in real life, it seems like wicked people do seem to be very successful. I mean, we see wicked people, you know, or in a practical way, who seem to be quite successful at life. And if that's true, then what's the verse getting at? Uh, because if, if King Solomon's saying, hey, this is a truth, well, I ought to be able to go out and see it in real life. And if I see the opposite in real life, then something else must be going on. Either I'm not understanding the verse correctly, or maybe King Solomon is saying something slightly different uh, in, in, uh, in what he's getting at. Okay, and Kathleen, you said it's only in this time. Can you elaborate just a little bit? I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. If you could give me a little more detail, uh, that would help. Uh, now, Interestingly, if we look at it from a practical standpoint, we could say, well, it isn't righteousness that saves you from hunger, it's wisdom. I mean, if we look at it really literally as physical hunger and being able to get food and the material things that you need, it would seem that in, in our real world, it's not righteousness that, that keeps you from hunger, it's wisdom. So why does the verse say the righteous will not go hungry? not the wise people will not go hungry okay so we've got we've got a series of questions kind of circulating around here any others that you would want to add uh, add into that we're just again trying to get the questions out on the table first uh, before we uh, before we try to go to answers let me pause because I see a couple of you writing so I'll wait for that Okay, Rena, righteous is a Torah student. Okay. Anything else? Okay, uh, 
looks like a couple of you are still writing. Uh, okay, and Rena, you wanted to add that when you study Torah daily, your soul is well watered. Okay, understand that is not hungry. Okay, uh, and uh, so I, I would agree with you that that is true. However, what the verse is saying to us is God will not let the righteous go hungry, as opposed to if the righteous study Torah, their souls will not go hungry. And so what I want to try to figure out is, well, what's, what's going on with God's intervention? I mean, I understand God provided us the Torah, um, you know, which is, is food for the soul. But the fact that King Solomon specifically brought up God in this verse uh, means something particular. And part of the reason uh, that, that, or one of the things that we should note is, if you read through like a whole chapter or two of Proverbs, you, will, you won't see God mentioned very much. King Solomon talks a lot about life and people and the wicked and the fools and the wise and the righteous and so forth, but only very occasionally does God specifically get brought into the picture. Um, and uh, so, and Irina, you said it's not God's fault if we're hungry. Well, and that's what what uh, we want to, we want to get to, and again we need to specify: Are we talking about uh, hunger in a terms of a uh, what you refer to as a spiritual sense, or hunger in terms of uh, a physical sense? Uh, so, and you're right; you can't. You know, it's pretty hard to blame the Creator for anything since He set the system up, and we are all His uh, all His creations. Um, Kathleen, you said the evil that is done uh, is gratified immediately, but it is only active receiving, not an active bestowal. Um, okay, evil that is done is gratified immediately, uh, but it is only an active receiving, not an active bestowal. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not clear on what you're getting at on that. On that point, if you want to elaborate on that, I'll do my best to uh, to address that. The Meiri, who is one of the uh, the great Torah commentators, makes an interesting comment about this verse. He says that it w that when the verse says God, he points out that we don't know who God is or what God is. And we discussed this, I think, in an earlier class, but it, it bears repeating, that there are only really two things that we can know about God. The first is we can know what he is not. And I use the word he as a pronoun just because that's the most, you know, convenient. But we, we can know what God is not. I mean, it's pretty easy to prove that, you know, God's not a rock or God's not a cup of coffee or God's not a, a lamppost. Uh, and we can know how he relates to the world because we have the Torah and uh, we, can, we can gather from that based on the stories that are there when God relates to the world, how he relates to the world. What we can't know is who God is. Uh, all, all we can know, I mean, you may recall, Moses wanted to see God's glory and and uh, God said, no, the best, you know, the only thing I can do is to put you in this cleft of the rock and, and I'll go by and you'll like see, you know, the, the, uh, 
the remnant or the, the, uh, the, the, I hate to say the tail end as I go by or whatever, one writer described it as the wake of a boat after the boat goes by. So we, we don't exactly know, uh, we can't know who God is, but we do know how God relates to us. And God relates to us in uh, two ways. First of all, through the laws of nature. I mean, he created those. We have, you know, atmospheric laws, laws of gravity, uh, uh, just the natural way that the world uh, order and its systems are all set up are the laws of nature. If, if you go uh, purposely uh, swim out into a, a riptide, the riptide does not differentiate uh, particularly uh, between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, see, if there's a body there, the riptide's going to pull you down. Now, if God, in what I'll mention in a minute, particularly intervenes, that might be a different case. But generally speaking, we're all subject to the laws of nature. And so we have to understand and know um, how those work and, uh, and order our lives accordingly. The second way that God relates to us is through, uh, a, uh, if we're on an appropriate level, uh, what is called in Hebrew, hashkacha proteus. It's a, God's personal relationship. And this also is a system. It's not like our parents. Um, it is a mistake to think that God is just like a big version of our parents or like an angry dad or something like that. That, gee, I need to do things in order to win brownie points with God so he'll give me what I want. Uh, learning true ideas about Torah uh, helps us to dispel notions like that. Um, so that we don't interpret God that way. But there is a case where God intervenes uh, personally in the lives of certain people who are on a certain level. We read that in the Torah when God relates to certain of the patriarchs. Um, and, you know, we try to uh, glean what we can uh, about that. A large part of the Torah is about telling us the system uh, of when God relates to us directly like that and when not. Uh, and it's quite a study to learn and, and uh, understand that. Interestingly, uh, you know, one of my mentors has pointed out, you know, a lot of people will say, gee, I want a personal relationship with God. Well, do they really? Because the, the maybe knee-jerk reaction in our society might be, if I get a personal relationship with God, then I'm all protected from everything and he'll give me everything I want. But when you look at those that had, you know, were on a very high level in the Torah and had personal relationships with God, um, they had some pretty challenging lives. I mean, you look at the things that Jacob, for example, had to go through um, and, uh, and, and deal with, and he's worried about, at one point, about his brother Esau trying to kill him, and his daughter Dina is, is raped. And then he loses his son Joseph and is without him for uh, 22 years. I mean, there's a man going through some seriously difficult stuff. Now, uh, it could be argued that God's personal supervision or God's personal involvement in his life was uh, that he designed things to bring about certain character development in Jacob. But character development is a very difficult thing. So... Sometimes we have to be careful what we wish for, uh, because if we wish for, you know, God's personal intervention in my life, 
what that may result in is being put in a situation where we have to deal with very difficult situations that bring up the character flaws that we have and give us an opportunity to deal with them. Uh, great for character growth, but uh, can be very, very challenging. So most of the time in the book of Proverbs, when God relates to us, it's in a practical way, through the laws of nature. Um, and so through the laws of nature, both a righteous person and a wicked person could go hungry. And I'm talking about literal hunger here, not a, a soul hunger or uh, that kind of thing, but a literal physical hunger. Okay, let me pause, and, and Kathleen, you wrote, uh, the Creator is a constant measure of bestowal of goodness. Uh, this is something we can gauge what is wrong and right, uh, how we can uh, measure and how we conduct our lives. So, yes, I mean, the Creator constantly, uh, from everything I understand from the Torah and all my learnings, only wants good for His creation. Uh, we end up uh, you know, creating an awful lot and maybe all of the difficulties that we have uh, ourselves, either through actions that we take or the way we look at, uh, you know, certain things uh, that can happen. If I'm driving down the road and some guy cuts in front of me, well, okay, some guy cut in front of me. If I get really, really angry and upset about that, um, well, that's a great opportunity for me to see that I need some character development because, hey, all the guy did was cut in front of me. Uh, you know, why am I so upset about that and what emotional issue and uh, what have I got going on that I need to deal with uh, as a result of that. So situations in life that cause us great angst can be ones that are the greatest uh, mirrors or signposts to us to say, hey, there's something that I need to work on. So let's take a look at a little bit of what is a righteous person and what is a wicked person. This verse is talking about both. In Hebrew, a righteous person is called a tzaddik, and a wicked person is called a rasha. And we're going to do a lot of this in Proverbs, of looking at the righteous and the wicked, because by studying this, it helps us to be more successful in life. So I'd like to suggest to you that there are two kinds of pleasures in life. One is a pleasure that's a fantasy, and the second is a pleasure that's a reality. Uh, examples. Uh, taste and smell are reality pleasures. Uh, if I'm walking along, sometimes I go for a bike ride or a walk through my neighborhood in the evening, and somebody's got their barbecue going, and that waft of barbecue, you know, rolls out onto the street. Okay, that smell is a reality pleasure. My, you know... Sensory organs are detecting the smell, and it's very pleasurable to me. Or, uh, you know, my son brought me in some fresh strawberries that, that uh, my wife grew. Uh, and, you know, if I bite into one of those, the taste of those is going to be delicious and sweet and, and very pleasurable. That's, those are reality pleasures. But something like greatness isn't a real pleasure. It's really a fantasy. It's only created in the mind of the person. So things like greatness and jealousy and those kinds of things are not particularly in line with reality. Now, the Torah is very against fantasies. The whole 
Torah life is about living in reality. And the Torah is against fantasies because they aren't in line with reality. So if we live our lives so that our needs are in line with reality, we'll always be satisfied. Because if my need isn't in line with reality, then I'll lose the pleasure for that need. And apart from halacha, or Torah law, uh, that, that prohibits us from something, the difference between those pleasures that we should partake of and those which we should not partake of is a quantitative difference, meaning it's measured in quantity. For example, uh, and Rena, thank you, appreciate that. Um, for example, drinking alcohol. So if someone comes home after work and wants to have a glass of wine uh, or, you know, a drink, we can't necessarily say that's a bad thing. Okay? Maybe they just enjoy wine. But if a person has to get drunk, then that quantity is harmful to him. And there's a big quantity difference between, you know, one drink or a glass of wine or a beer and getting drunk. And the person that gets drunk after a while he gets hooked on that pleasure, and so he won't even enjoy it anymore as a pleasure. What it becomes for him is an escape from life. In other words, he's trying to get away from life. It's not an enjoyment of life itself. It's that I'm using that to get away from life. Okay? And you'll notice that uh, a lot of the pleasures of the physical world if taken in a large enough quantity, can destroy a person physically. You know, if, if we overdo it, those things will do us in. Um, you know, if, if you eat a nice meal, okay, it's, uh, uh, you know, that's fine. If I have to just stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff myself day after day after day, well, then I've taken that quantity to an extreme where it's harmful to me. If I have a bowl of haagen ice cream once in a while, well, great. If I need a carton of haagen every single day, that's going to end up being a problem for me. So it's not that eating ice cream or drinking alcohol or, or food or whatever is wrong, because that then is the opposite extreme. Uh, the Torah does not hold against enjoying the physical world. Uh, what the Torah is against with regard to the pleasures is one of two things. It's, it's either the quantity where you go too far and it harms you physically, or where you go to the opposite extreme and you abstain from everything. And that's also wrong because you should be able to enjoy the physical world. I mean, God created it for us. If, if we enjoy the correct amount, then it's a, it's a pleasure. Now, some people fall into a trap, and I think it can be exacerbated by something we would call their religious emotion, that if they think that if they abstain from a legitimate pleasure, then somehow that's a good thing. Sort of like there's some, somehow some benefit in torturing myself. Like, gee, I'll win extra points with God or something. But God provided those pleasures for us. Uh, and, you know, we have to ask, what kind of gratitude is it to reject a gift that has been provided to us by the Creator? Uh, I mean, that is, enjoying the pleasures that God provided in this world 
is a way that we honor him and to say, well, I know you created all these pleasures, but, you know, somehow I think it's more religious if I don't enjoy them is kind of a slap in the face uh, from my standpoint. So it's about quantity, and this is where the tzaddik, the righteous person, carefully evaluates the correct quantity of the pleasures so that he'll always enjoy them. So he, he has enough to enjoy them, but not so that he gets hooked and has to need more and more. So, you'll yeah, Kathleen, very good point. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah, there are a number of religious groups that, that say, you know, uh, you know, this thing is bad, that thing is bad, sex is bad, you shouldn't have any of that, and it's more spiritual somehow if you abstain from that. And then we see what happens, you know, to people that do that, and you end up with reports of people molesting children and doing all kinds of, of terrible things. Why? Because they haven't recognized the reality that that sexual drive is a, is a natural and real thing. And there's an appropriate outlet for that. And God created uh, that for us and, and made it available to us. So it's not that the world and the pleasures in it are bad. It's a quantitative thing. And so what we have to do is do an analysis you know, in each and every situation to determine, okay, what is the appropriate amount of this pleasure and how do I, how do I best handle it? So, let's go back to our verse for a second. You'll notice that the verse says that God will not let the righteous go hungry. Okay? Well, that means the wicked is hungry. And that raises the question, why should the wicked be more hungry than the righteous? I mean, you got people out there, and they're doing stuff, and, you know, everybody can go down to the store and buy a cheesecake or, you know, a, a steak or whatever it happens to be. So why would the wicked end up being more hungry in the real world than the righteous? Any thoughts about that? And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, truly in terms of, of satisfaction in the physical world. Okay. Any thoughts about why the righteous would not be hungry, but the wicked would? Kathleen, you're right, okay. They are void of God. In other words, they don't, if I'm understanding what you're saying, they don't uh, have a, a sense of a creator. So they're missing that part, that's true. Okay, so uh, Rina, you're saying the wicked is not hungry, um, which leads to the fact that they don't um, search for God. Okay, but our verse is implying God will not let the righteous go hungry, but it suggests that the wicked is. Um, and again, I'm, I'm talking physical world. I'm not talking, you know, uh, uh, a soul type of thing. Oh, that's okay. Not a problem. So here's a, here's a thought. The nature of the Russia, the wicked, is that the more he has, the more he wants. Okay? He smokes one cigarette, he wants another, and then three a day, and then six a day, and then a pack a day, 
and then two packs a day uh, and and similarly with money you know a lot of people think if they could just get X dollars and you can fill in X for whatever you want then they'll be satisfied but what happens is that when they get there their desires become that much greater okay uh, they're never satisfied okay Kathleen and yep you mentioned reminds you of the Romans it's it's you know the the Talmud I think teaches uh, that no no man dies with even half his wants satisfied and the person who has 100 wants 200 the person who has 200 wants 400 you know it doesn't matter whether we're talking about dollars widgets uh, whatever it might be so if that's the case what's the difference between the righteous and the wicked um, because you know, wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't they both be hungry in that sense that they're never satisfied? And if the righteous is interested in learning, and the wicked is interested in um, the material world, the physical world, the physical pleasures, two extremes, wouldn't the difference just be that while they're both dissatisfied, it's just they're dissatisfied in different areas. Uh, you know, the wicked's dissatisfied because they can't get enough, um, you know, food or alcohol or drugs or sex or whatever they want. Uh, and the righteous aren't satisfied because, um, you know, they're not getting enough, uh, enough learning. Um, uh, okay, good points made on screen. So people seeking to bestow and people seeking to receive. Okay. Kathleen, thank you. And, and Rena, the righteous is content with his lot and the wicked is greedy always. It's a very good point. The wicked is living for a certain idea. He is striving. Okay? Uh, the righteous is never satisfied in his learning because the more he's learned, the more he wants to learn. But there's a big qualitative difference between the righteous and the wicked here, and not just in what they're, they're, they're after. The wicked is striving for a goal. Uh, if you think about, like, the Inquisition, you know, people were, uh, to, to use a vernacular, going for God. You know, they thought they were doing all this for God. They're driving for a certain goal. Uh, same with a person who wants to make a million dollars. He's driving for the goal, except that he'll never be satisfied when he gets it. Um, when have you ever seen someone who made it their goal to become a millionaire? And once they made it, they stopped working and just enjoyed what they had. No, because the one who has one million wants two million, and the one who has two million wants four million. I understand that um, J. Paul Getty, who was, I believe, the richest man in the world back in the, uh, in the 1900s, was once asked by a reporter, how much is enough? And Getty's reply was, just a little bit more. See, they can't they're never content. They never get the satisfaction because they're after a fantasy that they can't fulfill. Uh, uh, you know, they, they think it's this, but when they get to that, well, then it's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And there's never a satisfaction, so there's always a hunger there. Now, by contrast, when a righteous person learns, he's not learning for the goal. He's only moving at the speed of his mind. So the, the righteous person, when he's involved in study, he's not so hung up on getting the answer. 
He just wants to understand the phenomenon. In other words, he's not striving for, his striving is not about, well, I've got to like finish this section or get done with this thing. He's not so interested in those kinds of results. When he, when he gets an answer to something, then he moves to the next area so he can be involved in the learning process again. He's not in it for the answer. He's only in it for the enjoyment of the learning. Now, I mean, part of the enjoyment of the learning is you figure out, you know, what answers are. But it's not about, well, I'll be happy when I get the answer. It's I'm happy being in the process. So I'm content being involved in learning. And that's where the righteous are. The wicked are in it for the goal. And the nature of learning is not necessarily to gain more knowledge, but to understand the phenomenon. So the righteous is interested in the pleasure of the learning itself, the process. He's not seeking the end of it. Now the wicked, he's trying to fulfill this emotional need and this desire that becomes some ideal that he has to strive for. So he builds up a pleasure to something more than it really is. And so when he doesn't have it, he feels pain. You know, if I didn't have my money or if I didn't have my, you know, uh, supercar or whatever it happens to be, um, he's, he's got some pain because he's taken that pleasure and elevated it to a level that's into a fantasy. But the righteous, the tzaddik, is different. He's living in line with reality. I mean, he's maybe partaking of the same kinds of pleasures. He might have the bowl of Haggadahs and the glass of wine and, and a nice steak dinner, but he recognizes where it fits in life, that it is just a pleasure. And uh, his greatest pleasure is in learning, but he wants to live only in line with reality. And only that which is in line with reality really gives him pleasure. So if something comes up so he can't be involved in his pleasure, which is the learning, then he just accepts that because that's part of reality. So, for example, let's suppose he was headed toward uh, the base midrash, the study to go to a class with a bunch of classmates, um, and his car broke down along the way, and he didn't make it to the class. So he wouldn't be upset because he'd recognize the reality is my car broke, and maybe that was within my control and I should have gotten it maintained, or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a fluke part that just went, went bad. But he accepts that as part of reality. Um, he doesn't miss the fact that he didn't have the pleasure he wanted, unlike the wicked, uh, who will miss what they have and be very, uh, you know, be troubled and upset about it. But the righteous's only desire is to live in line with reality, and he accepts that, uh, while the wicked person is only living in terms of their emotions. So now we can understand the verse. Um, because what it's saying is the Russia is a person that's never satisfied because his fantasies aren't in line with reality. But the Tzaddik is always satisfied, so he's not going hungry, because he is living in reality. And the wicked won't be satisfied because his desires are emotional, and the nature of his desires is to try to fulfill a fantasy, and by definition you can't fulfill a fantasy. Because it is a fantasy. Um, okay, does it? Let me pause. I've been talking for a while. Does this make sense so far? And any questions about what I've said?
Okay, good. Thank you, Rena. So, up till now, if we conclude, we could say what we know so far about sort of the wicked and the righteous is the nature of the pleasures of the righteous is greater than the pleasures of the wicked because it's it's learning. And the wicked will make more mistakes because he's attached to the physical side of life, while the righteous is not. He lives in the physical world and he works with the physical world, but he's not like attached to it. That's not where his greatest uh, pleasure and desire is coming from. And if the wicked is able to attain his goal, he still won't be satisfied because that goal is a fantasy which he can't fulfill uh, by definition. Interestingly, this is a good, uh, a good reason not to necessarily give in to children who want something. And the reason for that is because the more they want, or the more they get what the, the more they get, the more they want, and the more they'll strive, and ultimately they may end up in a situation where they're never satisfied. doesn't mean you shouldn't get children things, but those people that always give their children everything they want, you end up kind of teaching the child to be striving for always the next thing, which is exactly uh, what we've talked about that the Russia does, the wicked person. Okay, that's, I think, pretty much everything on chapter 10, verse 3, unless someone has another question. Okay, I think we have time for one more verse. Uh, let's move on to chapter f to, or chapter 10, verse 4. And this is a very interesting one. It says, A poor person makes a false weight, and the hand of the diligent will become wealthy. A poor person makes a false weight, and the hand of the diligent will become wealthy. Now, false weight, you probably know, uh, this is referring to back in the days... Uh, when when they would you know weigh things in like the markets and so forth, uh, they would have a, a balance, and so they, they would have a, like a one pound weight and they put on one side of the balance and then the potatoes or the onions or whatever they're buying on the other side, um, to uh, uh, and when you got the thing in balance then you knew you had a pound of of uh, onions or a pound of uh, potatoes. So if a uh, person shaved off a little bit of that weight. To make it, you know, I don't know, two uh, percent less than a pound, then they could get away with selling less stuff for the price of a pound, and so that's what the verse means uh, by a false weight—a weight that isn't really uh, accurate. So, poor person makes a false weight, and the hand of the diligent will become wealthy. So, my question is, Arena, ah, you do remember those days? Good for you. Uh, uh, what are the questions about this verse that we could ask? What questions pop out? Poor person makes a false weight and the hand of the diligent will become wealthy. Any questions come to mind?
Here's an initial one to ponder. Every poor person is not a cheater. So what does it mean here that a poor person is going to cheat? Because it says a poor person makes a false weight. Okay. okay, Rena, good. Cheating doesn't make you wealthy. I would absolutely agree. So we've got a question uh, about why it says a poor person makes a false weight. And so, uh, Kathleen, you've asked, are we talking about those who have knowledge or those who don't have knowledge? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know that we know that. Uh, we'll have to see if we can extrapolate that out of the verse. Okay. Hard work does make you wealthy. Uh, Rena, does that always work all the time in the real world? would be a question I would would ask on that. Certainly we would we would laud hard work as something that's uh, that's necessary uh, and Kathleen I would agree that we don't we don't always see that that works because I think we can see cases where people do work very hard and don't get wealthy and we see other people that don't lift a finger uh, and some you know prominent people in the uh, uh, the tabloid press that you see a lot who have lots of money and, you know, didn't lift a finger to get it. Um, and Sue, so you said uh, uh, you could turn it around and say a false weight, uh, which is dealing dishonestly, makes a person poor uh, eventually. I would agree, but that would be a different verse. Uh, in this case, King Solomon has, has put this particular juxtaposition, uh, I think, in for a reason. Uh, and Rena, I see what you're saying uh, when you say hard work uh, yeah, may not make you wealthy uh, materially, but realistically. Um, so let me ask just a couple of other questions on our verse here. Uh, the opposite of poor is wealthy. Now, if we were thinking that this, this verse is dealing in opposites, you would think the second half would talk about uh, a wealthy person. But the second half talks about the hand of the diligent uh, will become wealthy. Um, and so what's the deal with that? Those don't seem to, to balance each other out very well. Uh, and then we've got a question of what does it really mean when we say poor? We kind of have this sense of what that means, but the question is specifically what, what does poor mean uh, in the context of the verse. And my, uh, my mentor, Rabbi Moskowitz, has said that whenever there are two qualities in a verse, those two qualities have something in common. And they may be opposites, or sometimes they may be two degrees of the same quality. So we've got, basically, we're talking about a poor person and an energetic person, the hand of the diligent. And so we could ask, well, what does a poor man have to do with an energetic guy? Uh, an energetic guy could be poor, and we do see energetic guys who cheat. So, uh, so let's take a look at, at the question of poor and poverty. Um, and Rena, I see your comment there, like the race between the, uh, the turtle and the hare. Thank you. 
I would suggest to you that there are three causes uh, of poverty. And Kathleen uh, would agree, poor people are desperate and they, are, they can be highly motivated. So what causes poverty? I'd like to suggest three things. Number one, there are outside forces, like the markets. You know, the stock market goes down. Uh, you know, um, I, I thought that, um, you know, real estate was going to go up and I bought it, but the real estate market went down, and there are forces out there that are outside of my control. So that's one way a person could end up poor. The second way is that a person isn't intelligent, so he doesn't know the ways of business and so he becomes poverty-stricken because of his ignorance. He's just a bad business person, you know, is not smart. And the third way, and Rena, thank you for pointing it out, is laziness. person doesn't want to do the work necessary to get the kind of material goods that they need. Now, let me, let me just uh, hit those again. So we've got, number one, outside forces. Number two, a lack of intelligence, and three, laziness. Okay, and, and uh, Kathleen, you've got bigotry and hatred and ignorance. Uh, the ignorance one, I would agree, uh, could be a source of poverty. Bigotry and hatred will probably get you some really unfortunate consequences. Uh, they could cause poverty in certain cases, particularly if you create such bad relationships with people that nobody wants to do business with you or um, have anything to do with you. Um, so what I'd suggest is that the verse has to be talking about one of these causes. And it doesn't make sense that it's talking about outside forces because that would be outside of our control. I mean, we can't control outside forces like the real estate market and so forth. Um, <laughs> Good point, Kathleen, living in California. You know about real estate down there. Um, the verse could be talking about the idea of the a person needing to be intelligent, but then the juxtaposition of the fact that we've got the hand of the diligent on the other side of the verse doesn't fit because those two don't necessarily have something in common. But the laziness aspect, there is a fit because... The opposite of laziness could be seen in this context as diligence or being energetic. So, the, our first step here would be to say that when King Solomon is saying that he's poor, that the poorness is coming about through laziness. Um, and interestingly, according to the Chofetz Haim, uh, there are certain people who by nature just can't get a job. Um, I think we touched on that briefly in, a, in an earlier class. But in this case, we're talking about a person who by his nature is lazy. Now, what's the difference between a lazy person and an energetic person? The lazy person and the energetic person both want the same result. They want a certain amount of success. But the difference is the lazy person wants it handed to him on a silver platter. He doesn't want to have to go through the necessary steps to get there, while the energetic person is willing to take every necessary step. Now, a person who wants to skip steps, a lazy person, okay, is going to have to change things around in reality because reality requires that you take all the steps. 
so a lazy person is going to try to skip the steps. And one way in this particular case you can skip steps is to make a false weight. In other words, you're saying, well, I'm entitled to someone else's money without having to fully work for it. Now, if you keep cheating, sooner or later, you will get caught. Okay, consequences will catch up uh, generally on, on those kinds of things. When we talk about justice, we're talking about living in accordance with a rational system. But cheating is not living in accordance with a system. And since the lazy person, by cheating and making the false weight, is training himself only on the particulars, that is, I want what I want, as opposed to a system, like I live in a society that operates in accordance with a system, and a system has to be handled in, with fairness and justice, then the lazy person is training himself incorrectly. He's training himself to live according to his feelings. I want that extra money, and this is the quick way I can get it, no matter what the consequences are or what I'm doing to anybody else. And the more that a person does that, and we discussed this, I think, in an earlier class, the farther and farther away you get from reality. The person keeps thinking that they're reinforcing the idea that I can bend reality to make it go the way I want because I refuse to see that I live in a system where everybody has to come out fair, but uh, I want what I want and I'm going to take shortcuts to do that. Um, you know, we talked about, I think, Hitler in a, in a previous class. He was successful in the beginning. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that what he was going for was a laudable thing, but he was successful at it. But as he became more and more successful, he started leaning more and more toward his emotions and his feelings, which moved him further and further away from reality, and ultimately uh, he was destroyed. Uh, there was, I understand, a situation where uh, he was pr uh, pushing his armies up into uh, Russia, and it was starting to become, winter was starting to set in, and uh, his generals sent word back and said, let us pull back, we'll hunker down, consolidate apparently our forces, sit it out over the winter, and then we'll be ready to go in spring. And Hitler's response was, I will not give up one inch of German territory. And he, he had this sort of megalomania idea in his head by that time that, you know, this is my stuff and I can't be defeated. And what happened was the Russians, you know, were much better equipped, apparently, for that kind of winter. Uh, troops came in who had the right equipment and uh, the German troops were spread out and, you know, farther into Russian territory than they should have been, uh, and that was a, a turning point, apparently, in, uh, you know, part of, uh, of the downfall of Germany in that conflict. So, that idea of staying in reality is very, very important. People don't realize, I think in general, how much you can destroy your own ability to think by skipping steps and taking shortcuts and not operating justly. Not in the sense that, like, God's going to come in and punish you, but in the sense that we destroy ourselves by doing that uh, so that we can no longer operate effectively uh, within the, the laws of nature and, and the systems that God created. So 
uh, it's also, I uh, just would note, and I realize we're almost out of time, um, that uh, this verse also could be talking about learning. Uh, there is no shortcut to learning. Uh, a person has to take all the steps. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit like, you know, the person who walks into a karate dojo who's never trained before and, and says to the, to the teacher, I want you to teach me how I can jump up in the air and kick five opponents like Bruce Lee does in the movies. Uh, you know, that's someone who wants to skip steps. Uh, the way you learn how to jump up in the air and do that sort of thing is by going through all the basics and laying a solid foundation and there's no shortcut. In the same way of learning Torah and learning Proverbs and uh, learning correct reasoning and how to think correctly, there are no shortcuts. Uh, we see a lot of people these days uh, that want to get into, you know, uh, Kabbalah and mystical things. Uh, and, and in my opinion, that's a reflection of the American idea that we like to uh, sort of... Uh, take shortcuts and, and, you know, get to some place without having to do the real work uh, along the way. I think the sages taught that uh, a person who only a person uh, or a person had to have mastered Torah and Talmud before they were ready for Kabbalah and even then only small hints of those things were given. Uh, and to the best of my knowledge, at least in the, in the Noahide world, there aren't too many people that uh, I can name who I would say have mastered Torah and Talmud. Uh, but we like, we like, people like to take those shortcuts. Uh, but there are no shortcuts in learning and no shortcuts in Torah. Okay. Um, and Kathleen, yes, I, uh, I see your note there that uh, Hitler's uh, grandfather was Jewish. I knew, I was aware that he had some uh, 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 Jewish background. I wasn't sure of the details on that. Uh, we've got just about a minute left. Any questions on uh, these verses or anything we've discussed? Okay, so uh, just to remind you again, there will not be class next week. No class on June the 28th. Uh, we'll resume in two weeks, uh, and if you want to note the dates, there will also not be a class on July 12th, uh, will not be a class on July 26th, uh, so we'll be a little bit sporadic here over the summer, uh, but get ourselves uh, hopefully back, uh, back into gear when we uh, get toward the fall. So, thank you all very much for joining. If you have uh, any questions, uh, please email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com. Uh, and I'll look forward to talking with you all in uh, two weeks. Thank you all very much.